Check, 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 check. Okay, I'm recording both places. Surely, to God, one of these is going to work. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. Scott, look at that new music. What's up, man? We're excited about this. I'm like sitting like, I'm like grooving over here. <laughs> you are. I love it. I've never seen you. I have seen you dance before. I take that back. This is very exciting. Where it's a new year, new music, same two dudes on the mic. That's right, so. man. That's right. We are, we are officially back here in, uh, I guess it's not spring. It's not spring 2020 yet, is it? S- still winter. Yeah. Still winter. But we'll get there. It's It'll a nice be, day though today. It is not bad today. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's chilly. I'll, I'll take it. There's a nip in the air, but uh, blue skies. But you don't. It's not. It doesn't require a jacket. I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right. So this is going to be. I guess this is our first episode of this session. Really, right? You could say it's the inaugural. I could say it's the inaugural. Right. So um, today is uh, January twenty fourth. So in in two weeks, we'll have the governor's state of the state address. We'll have um, the kickoff of the legislative session, and so that gives us two weeks to start really preparing ourselves and listeners for what's about to come and it's uh could be a doozy it's gonna be <laughs> a doozy there's just there's a lot going on we've got uh it is an election year which we're gonna talk about here in a little bit it's, can you believe it i mean it seems like it's always an election year like when is it ever not an election year right well, like god it was just almost four years ago that let's fix this started in an election year that's, in a presidential election that's year. insane i know and uh and here we are we've done more than 100 episodes of this podcast we are preparing for the second session of the 57th legislature. We've graduated to our second version of our theme music. Our second version of theme music. We're we're on a new, our second mixer. This is probably our fifth a, iteration of our podcast equipment. It's a fan. It's fancy. We're hoping it works out tonight. Well, so we want to listeners. We want to thank you for joining us again for our 102nd episode. Um, we are in the background. We're working on a healthcare series that we have been promising for for many moons but um in the foreground we want to prepare you as well for the upcoming session yeah so we're we're going to go through a few things today i think we're going to start with kind of an update of like uh, our own little state of the state like a lot has gone on in the off season particularly here in the last couple of months we're going to work through that there's a lot uh, some some legislative changes some that were expected some that weren't there's um a lot of stuff going on with uh, tribal gaming healthcare the medical marijuana industry and redistricting. Then we're going to talk about what to expect for the upcoming session. We're going to talk about a couple of bills, and then uh, that'll 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 get us kicked off. I think. I think so. And and just so that everyone knows, uh, next week uh, next week we will have um, our um, our twenty twenty predictorama. Ooh, there was a delay there. It's so fancy. It's some. I'm still playing with this, uh, uh, with this device. But yes, next week will be our 2020 Predictorama. So we'll have the full slate of bills that we're watching, issues we're tracking, and uh, and a website where you can go vote. Hopefully this year it'll be a little easier for me to score. It's been tedious the last couple of years. That's <laughs> true. We get also we should come up with a better prize pack. Agree. We've got T-shirts, but something cool. We gave a tote bag the first year. Last year was like T-shirts, stickers, those things. Should we just send them a pizza? No, dude, we'll come up with something good. All right. We'll think about it between now and next week. Um, 
So we're really exciting. Well, do um, who's am I starting? Are you starting? Why don't you kick, kick us off? Okay, so just uh, so that everyone's on the same page, we're going to give a bunch of updates real quick, and and maybe the first thing is relevant is that we've had two legislators resign already. So this is not as bad as it was uh, a couple of years ago. Neither of them are going to jail that we're right. aware of. <laughs> they're, right. they're, they're not, they're, neither of them are resigning in disgrace. Right. I think that's a... No, no that's the wrong one. I'm going to take the rim shot. No. There it is. Oh, no, here, here it is. Neither of them are going to jail. That's a good thing. So... Hey, oh, I was going for the... The applause? Yeah. Well, I, I haven't labeled all these new buttons on this new mixer, but... Uh, Sorry, listeners. We'll get it together before the end of the episode. I, I assure you. I'll say <laughs> I've got it down now. So what we are looking at is uh, Representative Stain, Shane Stone from South Oklahoma City, and Representative uh, No Senator Jason Smalley. Yep, um, have both resigned. Uh, Representative Stone, rep- he actually resigned in 2019, and then kind of revised it to be effective January 1st. So that there will not be a special election because it's a House seat, thus it's up for election this year anyway. If he had resigned in 2019 and had it effective last year, they would have done a special election and then had another a general election just a few months later. And that's, well, one, an unnecessary expense and a little tedious. Now, the downside is it means that his district won't have direct representation this session. And where is uh representative where's representative Stone? What's he doing? Where where's he going? Do we know? Uh he said and I have since forgotten because it's been several months. I know Senator Smalley is leaving to uh become a lobbyist. Uh, he'll be coming <laughs> he will be lobbying for the Motorola Corporation. Um and he put out a kind of a statement why he felt like that was a good job for him to take and the work that Motorola does in terms of like security and communications with law enforcement and yeah. Um, he didn't mention the money, but I would assume that that's part of it as well. That his salary is Motorola's uh, legislative, whatever the title is, whatever the fancy title for lobbyist that doesn't say lobbyist. Um, Director of Government Affairs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I assume that uh, I assume that the pay will be better than what he makes sitting in the, Oak- the Oklahoma State Senate. Um, you know, we were we were talking with a friend of ours, uh, and she said, you know, it's, it's so frustrating to see like all these legislators leave could be lobbyists and it's like yeah but they get term limited and they make more money so this is one this is one of the consequences that we talked about one of the consequences of the term limit situation everybody thinks it's so great you can't be a career politician but when you can't be a career politician you turn into a career lobbyist so well, and that's where the power is consolidated right it is funny i think but shane wasn't close to his term limit was he no, I think he's. I think this is personal and opportunity and something he felt like he needed yeah, to take yeah. advantage of. So it is funny. So on a related but different note, I happened to run into Representative Mickey Dollins this morning. We were both speaking to the same group of people at different times, and and I so I caught the tail end of his thing. And he someone asked him if he had a challenger this year, and he, he does. And it's uh, a former representative Mike Christian who formerly held Mickey's seat. But he did not run for re-election so he could run for Oklahoma County Sheriff. He lost that. So he served 10 years in in the legislature, left to run for sheriff, lost. And now he's running again. So he only has two years of eligibility left before he's term limited. And so he is uh, he's running again for just like a, literally a single term um, so that he could try to win. But he can only serve two years. 
in the legislature at all. And I thought that was unusual. Uh, and I would bring that up today. Yeah, I. Um, that's interesting. And especially because Mickey's pretty popular in his district. I and, think he is, and, yeah. And um, it'll be inter- interesting to see how that shakes out. So um, those are the two main, those are the two main, not vacancies, but uh, I guess they will be vacancies, but those are the main changes coming up for this second yeah. session of the 57th legislature. Yeah, so Stone um, is a Democrat. Smalley is a Republican, a fairly moderate Republican. Um, I think it's worth noting. And so those those two seats will be vacant, uh, one in each chamber. Senator Smalley is also was chair of the uh, health care committee in the Senate as well. Yes, and so Representative McCourt, or, uh, Senator McCourtney has been named the new chair of that yeah. committee. Did you see right. that today? I did see that, and that's from my, my friend view, of the pod. That's a friend, friend of the pod, and I would say that he will be, uh, I think he'll be excellent in that position. Yes. Uh, I, I will say, and we hope to have Senator McCourtney on soon in our health care series, but uh, the man, I think, I believe he's a minister, Yeah, but he also has been tasked with chairing the the medical marijuana, the joint working group, right? He's been a chair of the healthcare working group. Like, I I think his reputation precedes him that he is a good governance guy and that he cares about how things work and he is known to not be like terribly partisan and he's thoughtful and he's been very friendly and helpful to us and on the podcast and otherwise, I think. And uh, and so I'm, I think that's a good fit for him. I would agree. All right. So, so uh, next up, we got. Uh, be careful with that mic. Yeah, hot mic. That's, I don't, hot, that's uh, hot, hot mic. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, uh, tribal gaming, man. I didn't. I didn't think we'd be talking about this if you asked me three months ago. But um, this has like exploded in the last in the last six to eight weeks, probably. Yeah, I mean, just this month, like since New Year's, really. It's yeah, gotten a little little touchy. So a uh, little backup. Um, the uh, uh, native tribes that operate casinos in Oklahoma do so under uh, what's called a gaming compact. That's kind of the rules of the road for how they operate. And uh, a big part of, uh, and I shouldn't say a big part of, a part of the gaming compact is how much money, uh, what f- kind of fees the tribes have to pay to the state of Oklahoma. Um, the governor has said that he feels like these compacts need to be renegotiated. And he has said publicly that the reason to renegotiate these is because he feels like the tribes are paying fees that are much, much too low. Um, Point of, uh, excuse me, point of personal privilege. Also, the text of the measure is that they are supposed to be renegotiated every 15 years. That's not exactly what they say. No, but that's, that's why this came up, right? Governor Fallon did not address this during her term, probably because she was the most unpopular governor in history. But, um, she left it to Governor Stitt to renegotiate, and the tribes argued, I think as we've discussed on here before, that the compacts auto-renew every 15 years. Well, and in fact, I, I would say for a, a point of personal privilege on my end, that uh, the, the compacts say that they auto-renew provided certain conditions have been met. Mm-hmm. And the tribes would say those conditions have been met Therefore, the compacts auto-renew and are not up to be renegotiated. The governor takes the contrary position and says that, no, those conditions have not been met. And so the compacts expired effective at midnight or 11.59 on December 31st. Um, So this has now gone to court. Uh, The tribes basically uh, filed a lawsuit against the governor saying that he doesn't have the authority to, to make this 
assessment. Uh, the governor has then filed a response to their lawsuit. This is the most recent update. The governor has, re- has filed a response uh, to the lawsuit asking a federal judge to say that the tribes are violating federal and state law by continuing to offer Class 3 gaming. Uh, he wants there to be an injunction uh, that would prohibit the tribes from conducting Class 3 gaming uh, unless and until they negotiate new gaming compacts. And he wants to uh, judge uh, to impose a, a trust uh, on electronic gaming revenue that's earned by the tribes after January 1st so that they will, to keep the tribes from being, quote, this is a quote, unjustly enriched by continuing class three gaming activities. So um, this was a rhetorical battle uh, before the first of the year, and then it became a legal battle, and it just got escalated with the filing of this uh, lawsuit, this this response uh, by the governor. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Per, like, far be it for me to, like, uh, interpret the law and think what a federal judge is going to do politically. I don't feel like this is a great, like I've, I've kind of thought politically it was a mistake for the governor to pick this fight from the beginning. I think to ask for, I mean, can you like imagine that a judge files this injunction and says that class three gaming is like stopped. It's not allowed. So can you, can you imagine happen? Is he going to send in troops to shut him down? I mean, it's a court order. So, I mean, if he did, holy Moses, like that would just be like a legitimately bananas thing. And I can't imagine the governor will not lose an enormous amount of favor with everyone, with everyone, (laughs) tribes and the public. Certainly there's some folks that might, might not, but by and large, it's a bad look, right? Historically, when governors have sent in troops to regulate on regular citizens, it has not gone well. Well, I don't think it'd be the governor. It's like the, it's the judge, right? That's a federal judge that would do this injunction judge can't order troops judge can't order troops but like it would be the responsibility of the federal government to enforce the injunction not the state government hmm that's uh, well okay that's a whole I, different ballgame right like i have i've i, well, I would <laughs> i would argue that federal troops imposing the, the, the imposing, but he's gonna is he gonna send in the national guard i don't know like because he otherwise it'd be state troopers or, i don't know anyway so, are you saying if the judge orders them to stop the tribes are just gonna be like um no well i mean They've got two options. They can say, okay, and voluntarily do it, which would rile up a bunch of folks, or they could not comply and and taunt. I mean, I assume that the tribes would not comply and appeal. Like, and it would go up the chain. Is what right, I, that's is, true. Is what I, I think it, like, the legal world is so weird. I, I will say, Scott, you and I have talked about this offline, and I think our listeners would care about this. It's not really been in the media only because it's complicated. And there's one thing we do here. Let's pod this, and that's take complicated things and try to make it easier, right? We're not afraid of the weeds. We're, not, <laughs> we're like the we're like the roundup for political weeds. Monsanto. That was bad, dude. It was, was bad. bad. Okay, was well, bad. I apologize to you and our listeners. So the real issue with the tribal gaming compacts is not the rate at which they pay. It's not the amount. It's not about the money, Scott. I mean, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, okay, I'll play. I mean, yeah. I, I know what you're going to say. I know it because we've talked about this. The, the real issue here is that in 2017, a court, federal court, district court, I forget. I, I do not know the answer to that. A, a higher court struck down and removed one piece of the tribal gaming compacts. It's the dispute clause. And so effectively, the entire compact remains intact in except for the dispute clause. And that means 
that should the governor in this whole discussion, if he had ever come out and said, yes, we agree this compact auto renews, it would have auto renewed in that form, which is that form minus the dispute clause. And thus it would renew in perpetuity because there's no legal mechanism for the state to file a dispute and to actually challenge and say, hey, we should renegotiate this. It would just be a green light for the tribes to go ahead. And so my hunch, and from what I've heard through the grapevine, is that the governor doesn't really care about the rate. I think both the tribes and the governor understand that they'd probably pay a higher rate, and that's fine. But it's not about the money. It's about the fact that if he gives in now, it's a green light possibly forever for them to pay at the current rate and never never have it renegotiated by the never initiated by the state, right? And I think his goal is to get this done through arbitration, through the legal system, so that future governors aren't hamstrung on this and that and that it has some effect for the state budget. I don't know. So he's doing us a favor? Well I don't I'm not gonna say that, but I, I need th- you to do us a favor though. A solid. I think but that's that's an element that we've not seen the media but I think it's really important. It, it would be like, listeners, you have at some point probably lived in an apartment or had some kind of rental agreement maybe for your office or a home. I'd live in an apartment as we speak. That's right. Scott is uh, in between houses. It's true. So, Scott, when you signed your lease for your apartment, was there some kind of dispute clause or arbitration? Should you come to a disagreement with your, with your landlord? God, I hope so. <laughs> you didn't read it. So this is the other problem is that most people don't read it, and that's why the media won't write about this is because uh, most people don't understand. In fact, I talked with uh, Sean Murphy, who we've had on the show with the Associated Press here in Oklahoma City about this last night, and he, and he recognizes it's the case, and he is struggling as well as a journalist about how to how to write about this in a way that people would, the readers would care and actually understand. Right. Cause it's really in the weeds. It, it is. I also, it's not, it's not lost on me that I think, um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it is indisputable that the dispute clause was stricken from the compact. Like that's, that's, that yes, happened. It happened. Right? Yes. I also, it's not lost on me that I think the people that are talking most about this is like, Oh, this is the real issue is the dispute clause. Are people that are, I think, uh, safe to say, allied with the governor? Well, yeah, and it's but- not. And it's not lost on me that this actually this paints the governor in a much more positive light than saying, "No, the tribes need to pay more money because they're screwing over the state of Oklahoma." Like, y- you know, and I, I hear what you're saying, but and I- and, and so I, I'm I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying I would I question a little bit the narrative like oh it's not it's not about the money he didn't really care about it he didn't care what rate they pay i mean it'd probably be higher but you know like i <laughs> like I, I i think that he i think that he does care about the rate that they pay because if the tribes pay a higher rate they try the tribes pay a ton of money into oklahoma right and if they pay a higher rate then those are taxes that are being assessed but they're taxes that aren't being assessed on the majority of the oklahoma like the the majority of Oklahomans, right? Mm-hmm. And there are taxes that don't have to be assessed on other industries, right? So like uh, yes. I, I think that anytime I think anytime they have the opportunity to find revenue that they can get without saying that they increase anybody's taxes, I think that's I think th- I think that's something that uh our government salivates over a little you think bit. They would be supportive of that idea. Yeah. So I'm not saying I'm not saying that the dispute clause is not an important issue. I think it absolutely is. And it, 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 
it's something that certainly I think there's a million reasons why that has to be addressed. I just, uh, for the, for the folks that are kind of close to the governor and saying, Oh, it's, uh, it has nothing to do with the money. Come on, dude. It's not, it's, 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 well, it's it's not nothing. It's always, it's always about the money, right? It's not nothing with the money. It's just less about the money and more about this other like wonky legal aspect of it. So anyway, one thing we can agree on, Scott, is that this will be entertaining. Uh, that is a fact. I do not envy the governor's position on this. The fact that he's a bit in the lurch. And I think when he took office, this is one of those things that he did not foresee that he had to deal with. And it is squarely upon him. That's true. It's true. Um, all right. So what's next? Healthcare? Healthcare will be real brief here because um, we're going to do a whole series on it. Um, I I predict that this year uh, healthcare is going to be one of the overarching themes of the legislative session and the larger political discussion. One, we have the healthcare working group that's been meeting in the off season and they're going to come up with a recommendation. Two, the governor says that he's got a healthcare plan. He hadn't told us what it is yet, but he says he's got one. Um, so that's going to be the subject of much discussion. And three, don't, don't you worry. We have uh, Medicaid expansions is on the ballot and uh, is polling pretty well for, for November. So um, I think that I think that, and that all ignores the larger context that this is a general election year and healthcare has been a focus of the national political discussion in every election mm-hmm. uh, since the passage. Of, I mean, well, for decades, but especially since the passage of the ACA uh, in Barack Obama's first term. So um, I think that healthcare, healthcare, and healthcare. Um, I, I think we're going to hear arguably more about healthcare and possibly expanding access to healthcare along with trying to control costs. I think we're going to hear more about that in this legislative session than we've heard in any legislative session in the last uh, four years. Yeah. So there was a really interesting article today that we should put in our show notes that you sent to me. And then I saw representative Gary Mize shared as well, who we've had on the show before a Republican from Guthrie, right. Um, about a couple of ways that we could, dramatically reduce the cost of healthcare in America. Like two things. One is like basically show folks how much it costs, right? And then secondly, create some kind of uh, healthcare savings account that they could use. And there's a bunch of different ways. But anyway, I think the article is very salient and we should share it. I'll put it in the show notes if that's cool with you. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a really, it's from Market Watch. It's a really interesting article. And in, and I find actually, I find a lot of positive things about it. Um, it is certainly written from a very conservative perspective. It's definitely a conservative uh, economic perspective as well as a conservative perspective on healthcare reform. It's um, it's it's interesting. It focuses on two things. One, it focuses on um, basically that healthcare health healthcare providers, doctors, hospitals, etc., should advertise pricing, right? And that like you consumers should know how much something costs, and they should be able to shop around for the lowest cost. Um, I agree in theory um, for reasons that are beyond the scope of our discussion today. That is uh, very difficult to do. But one thing I would point out is that the example that the author uses is that of LASIK. You know, when LASIK came out mm-hmm. 20 years ago, right. it cost like $4,000 per eye. Now you can get it for $2,000 per eye. And that's because there's this great market and the market forces competition and competition brings down cost. And you can even get a sale where it's thousand bucks an eye, right? I did this and it's, yeah fucking brilliant i i every single day i tell my wife thank you so much for letting me like agree with me that lasik was worthwhile i appreciate it every day i would yes awesome (laughs) i will even i will even stipulate that uh 
market forces are part of the reason that LASIK is so much cheaper. Yeah. I would also argue that part of the reason LASIK is so much cheaper now is because of improvements in technology and processes, not just market forces. Sure. Um, however, I would also throw out there that that example has nothing to do with when you're having a heart attack. And it has nothing to do with when you need bypass surgery. It has nothing to do with when you're in a car accident or when you accidentally got shot or right. Like those, when you are in a situation of urgency and emergency, you don't have the time, the inclination or the expertise to shop around for who has the best price. Right. So, um, that's one area where just like posting prices doesn't really work. The other thing that he talks about in the, that the author talks about in the article is something that I think would be super cool is essentially um, having the, having employers, um, the example they use is the state of Indiana that does this for their public employees, having employers fund HSAs, having employers fund health savings accounts mm-hmm. that employees or consumers can then use to meet their deductible for insurance. Um, this is an idea that I think has actually a lot of merit and we can talk about why later. It's very similar to an idea that you and I have discussed um, in the past for health healthcare reform. So it's an interesting article we'll put in the show notes, but suffice it to say, yes, health reform is going to be a huge topic this year. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I, I look forward to our series. We've got um, a couple of interview schedules. So we'll we'll kind of release those into this same feed um, as we get closer to it. Just These will be above and beyond in addition to our regularly scheduled weekly Indeed, we'll do it in addition. Supplemental, if you will. All right, so next on our agenda for today is marijuana, right? Um, do we have, we have some music for this, right? Ah, oh, there it is. I knew we had some music for this. Um, so we're going to talk, uh, this is about recreational marijuana, not just medical marijuana. And um, the... Um, so there's been two state questions filed about this. Well, technically three, right? So state question 806 filed, and then they rescinded it like literally a day or two later, refiled as state question 807. It is headed up by Ryan Kiesel of the ACLU. And then uh, a guy named Paul Tay up in Tulsa, who's a little infamous up in that part of the state, at least. He's run for mayor a number of times. He's uh, a real character. He filed state question 808. And the when they filed uh, 806 initially, they came at odds with the medical marijuana community, really like vehemently opposed. And so they rescinded, changed a few things, refiled, and then um, and then now they've got it out there as 807. Paul Tay has challenged it, um, challenged the filing, which is not uncommon with state questions. What's uncommon about this is that Paul Tay is currently in prison. Um, or maybe jail. One of the he's incarcerated, regardless. And so he wrote um, like the the format and everything from his cell uh, and challenged it in court. I don't I don't know the rules. Like if, if he's allowed to attend that hearing as well. But regardless, eight oh seven. So the 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 bill that arguably has a better chance of getting there for recreational marijuana that is backed by Ryan Kiesel from the ACLU and some others will be out there. Um, so they've got a challenge coming up. Uh, and then 808, which was filed by Paul Tay himself, I think while he was already incarcerated, um, to my knowledge, has not received a challenge. And 
to that end will proceed on to signature collection. However, he's incarcerated and will not be able to organize around signature collection. So why is the medical marijuana community so opposed to recreational legalization? Well, so they were opposed to 806, but I have not heard any opposition to 807 or 808. What's the difference? Um, they, I should know this better before we talk about it, but I think my understanding is that the, they want some like carve outs and caveats to say that like to protect the medical community um, and, and ensure that, that there's like some difference in saying that like there are people who need this for medical reasons and their rights shall not be infringed by the folks who want this for just purely recreational reasons. It's interesting because there's uh, was a, a recent article uh, from uh, Oklahoma Watch, I think, that talks about how um, Oklahoma actually has recreational marijuana in all but name, right? Like, our medical law is so loose, it's functionally recreational, right? Like, you have to pay the 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever it is that you yeah. know, these doctors charge for you to get your license. But I have yet to find someone who applied for a medical card was and I didn't no, get one. No, I have so many friends. Yeah. It makes me, I've, I almost feel left out having not done it, but I, I don't feel like justified in finding a, a medical reason. I also don't take any other medications and I don't even take my vitamins regularly. So I feel like, well, I don't really need it. You don't need your vitamin M? What's that? You don't need your vitamin M? What is that? Marijuana, dude. Oh, no. I, don't. I was like, <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy bourbon. That's A man needs a vice, but one is fine. I, Between caffeine, caffeine and bourbon, I feel okay. Agreed. All right. So uh, after marijuana, there's another major topic that I think you're familiar with, Andrew. Uh, Hi-oh. Redistricting. Yes. So uh, state question 804 for the time being, right? That's uh, the, the ballot measure that would create an independent redistricting com- committee. Um, backed by a group called People Not Politicians, of which I am the director as well. Uh, we talked about this a while back. Listeners may be familiar with this. Um, so earlier this week, uh, we had our hearing before the state Supreme Court, um, hearing the two challenges to our to the ballot measure there. Um, the, the two challenges they filed, one was about the gist, which is just the, the paragraph that goes at the top of the signature collection form, right? So just a, a quick summary. It's literally the gist of the measure, and that's all it is. So that's where we get that term. Indeed. So they, they challenged that. They basically said our summary is too summarized, and we left out some information. And the justices pushed back on that a little bit. Um, it was a very fascinating conversation. Um, it's... It is almost impossible, Scott, to read the justices. We have not really had a chance to talk much since argument. How do you feel like argument went? What was your What was your impression? Yeah, I, I mean, oof, I feel like it went okay. Um, I I told our team, right, the campaign team, I said, listen, when the opposition is speaking, we're going to feel like we're losing. And when our attorney's speaking, we're going to feel like we're winning. And then we're going to leave, and we're not going to know what the hell's going on. And that is 100% exactly what happened. Um, and so I don't, you know, there's no timeline on them to rule. I trust our Supreme Court. I mean, they didn't, uh, they didn't get to be on the highest court in the land just by happenstance. They are folks that generally have a, a very um, high opinion of the, the rule of law and are very judicious, <laughs> as you might say, and uh, and how they rule. And so we hope that they will rule quickly so we can proceed one way or the other, but um, yeah, it, I don't know. It was it was a trip, man, getting to sit in the front row there with all the uh, the press and everything and 
listen to those arguments. So right now, it's kind of a waiting game, right? Like there's not a lot to do in terms of the campaign and, and whatnot mm. until, until you have a ruling. Is that accurate or no? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, we are certainly continuing. I mean, we're going to act like we assume that we are going to win because that's, I mean, of the two options, you can't just quit, right? So we are proceeding with, you know, doing trainings for signature collection, um, for kind of furthering the uh, the campaign down the road, and then and then if the court rules against us for some reason, then we'll deal with that and we'll revise and refile and, and cruise on down the road. So if people want to get involved in the campaign, they want to undergo training for signature collection, they want to donate, they want to learn more about it, what, what, yeah. do, they, what do they need to do? Go to peoplenotpoliticians.org and all the information's right there. Sign up um, and, or donate or um, you know tell us how you'd like to help out. We need everything. We need folks to you know author a letter to the editor. We need people to volunteer to carry petitions. We need folks to you know come to the office and help us do things around the office we got going on. We need volunteers all the time. So um, be very appreciative. All right. Well, that is uh, pardon me. Very appreciated. Oh, okay. I would be appreciative. It would be appreciated if folks would volunteer. So that's going to wrap up our uh, our update portion. Yeah, so show. that brings us up to today, right? Yeah. Um, do um, do we need some kind of uh, musical we'll interlude here? Take a quick break and then come back and preview the upcoming legislative session. All right. Oh, hang on. I hit the wrong button. Son of a bitch. All right, we're back. And uh, so the next segment we're going to do is how is this year, how is 2020 going to be different? So this is Governor Stitt's second year in office? Yeah, and you know, we were talking about previewing the legislative session and I was trying to I was trying to think of like what are what are like the themes, what are things that I'm like what are things that I'm going to be looking at as I'm watching Oklahoma politics over the next 4 months and and honestly, like this, you know, I th- I'm not like a, this isn't the matrix. I'm not the Oracle. Like I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball, but one of the things that's really interesting to me is how is this year going to be different for the governor and particularly the relationship between the governor and the legislature than it was last year. So last year, Governor Stitt was freshly inaugurated. He had some very specific goals and ideas. And I feel like, and I, and I don't mean to say this, this is not a, this is not a, um, a, 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 uh, judgmental statement but i feel like the legislature last year largely did exactly what he asked them to right like he said i want authority to hire and fire state agency heads they said okay he said i want to put 200 billion in savings and they said okay he said i want to give a raise to teachers and they said okay like the he they kind of did what all the stuff that he said he wanted to do to make us uh you know top 10 right hashtag top 10 i i think I, I, I want to be clear here. I I don't think that they're like the the majority party is like uh, in revolt against the governor in mass. But no, I but also think sliding. the relationship is a little bit more rocky now than it was a year ago. Like the tribes are a very powerful political and cultural influence in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You may not see that as much living in Oklahoma City, but in rural Oklahoma, the tribes. The tribes are a big deal, right? They have a lot of money. They have a lot of, a, a lot of influence, and rightly so. Um, 
and they're pissed, <laughs> right? Like the tribes, the tribes are not real happy with the governor at the moment. And I, I don't know, I don't know what that does to, to, to increase or decrease his effectiveness as he works with the legislature. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I just want to make clear that I said this, I said it on the show. We'll go back and find the freaking audio if that's what it takes. But when Governor Stitt said he wanted to appoint agency, agency heads, I said, and you said, and other people said, part of the reason, because the governor freaking admitted it, is that he wanted to be able to tell agency heads they are not allowed to ask for more than X dollars when it comes to their budget, right? Agency heads in Oklahoma have traditionally used the budget, at least recently, as a political document to show what the needs of their agency are, Mm -hmm. even when they know they're not going to get it, right? Uh, Commissioner Albaugh from the Department of Corrections last year asked for like a $2 billion budget increase, right? Like everyone, everyone, most of all him knew that was never going to happen, but he did it as a way to say, if we were really running this department the way I think we should run it, this is the like these are the resources that it would take. Like this is the extent to which we're underfunding this agency. And the governor said at the time, I don't think they should be allowed to do that. Right. He doesn't want agency heads to be able to use the budget as a way to communicate to the legislature and to the public at large, here's how much we're underfunding. So for instance, a, a great example is the director of the Department of Health, who the governor was the commissioner or director. It's commissioner, right? I don't remember. Yeah, but sure. The boss man, yeah, <laughs> the boss yeah. person of the Department of Health. Isn't it uh, the guy from city county now? Uh, yes. Gary something? Yeah. So he put out his budget request to the legislature and asked for like 5% less hmm. than what they'd gotten the year before. And several members of the legislature were rightly like, what? Mm-hmm. Like how can that can't be that can't be right. Mm-hmm. And the supposition was the reason that it's less is because the governor's office told him that's what you're going to ask for. Oh, right. Right? And several Republican representatives and senators are on record saying we don't think that this necessarily reflects an accurate assessment of what the department's needs are. Right. Because they're being directed by the governor. So, I mean, Arguably, and but, they act. It just—it's—it's it's infuriating because it's like we told, like we yes. <laughs> wish I was. I wish I was Instagramming you right now. <laughs> like Scott is, Scott is uh, insane with anger. He's he's, like, he's flexing in in, in like a, a the Hulk over like here. We, like we like we told like it's like uh you know what Andy knows one of my all time favorite quotes is from Toby Ziegler in the West Wing vis a vis Casablanca where he says I'm I'm shocked shocked I say to find that there is gambling in this establishment <laughs> right like are you stunned like the governor said that that's one of the reasons that he wanted the authority to hire and fire agency directors is so that he can tell them that they're not allowed to put out accurate budget requests if those budget requests ask for a lot a lot more money more than he expects right yeah that's a so i mean legitimately i think scott it's a tough deal right so i there's two things i think one is that that uh raskop gary raskop is that his name the i i believe that's correct so so the department of health if he asks for five percent less than what he needed legislators say oh well that doesn't reflect the, the accurately the needs of the department if he had asked for five percent more they would have said the same thing right like this is it's a catch-22 where someone's trying to play to someone else's favor arguably 
And it's it's hard for us as the public to know like what an agency really needs. If you gave the Department of Health a hundred million dollars more than what they asked for, could they use it? Absolutely. Like our state is lo- is lowest in a ton of health measures, and I would believe that they could put it to good use, right? They're, they're not just going to give raises across the board. They're going to actually have money to implement programs to target, I don't know, teen pregnancy, um, a maternal mortality, right? Like we're like one of the highest. My my wife is pregnant, and so this is top of mind for me that our state is one of the highest states for the number of women who die during labor. That's terrifying. Well, last night we had a conversation about like, where are your passwords so that in case it happens, which is we, horrifying to think. I mean, it's, it's the prudent thing to do, but right. Yeah. I mean, I was like, look, can we, I don't, I don't want to talk about this, but we should, right? Like it's, I, um, I feel like I, I want to be drunker for this conversation, <laughs> even though I probably, sh- I, I shouldn't be, Well, <laughs> but well, it's Friday. So, um, so, you know, so there's that. I also think, um, on a, to pull away from the budget, the the governor may have touched one of the uh, the third rails of Oklahoma elections in saying that he wants to have the authority to appoint the superintendent of education, right? So the the head of the Department of Education, currently held by Joy Hoffmeister, who I think is pretty well liked, certainly compared to her predecessor uh, Janet Barisi, who's running for the fifth district but and, and i think well respected for her expertise as well i think so too um and i mean for what it's worth full disclosure she came to our election night show in 2018 and and she did, was a really good sport did the top 10 list uh which i uh i thought was i appreciate scott you're just abusing the microphone today be nice i'm out of practice you should apologize yeah it's been a few months that's fair <laughs> so um the fact that the governor said i want to appoint the, uh, the superintendent of education. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I tune in on Sunday nights to the Oklahoma Ed chat on Twitter, and folks were riled up. Did not go over well. Not, I mean, and not just like is not just Democrats and liberals. Like, uh, who does he think he is? Yes, it was like educators across the board were like, absolutely not. You don't know jack about this, and stay out of our business. And I, one would think that after the last couple of years. Most politicians in Oklahoma would know that they should not rile up the educators. Yeah, no, I agree, and that touches on like kind of like the the next, you know, what I'm what I'm curious to see, right? Um, and again, I, I'm not saying that the relationship between like the leg, the legislature and the and the governor. And when I say the legislature, I really mean the Republicans because that's what matters in this conversation. I'm, I'm not saying it's poisoned, um, but I I do. It seems like maybe it's not. Uh, the rose colored glasses are maybe. Uh, if not off, they're sitting a little bit lower on the nose. Well, they, they're past the uh, honeymoon period. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So that's one of the things that I'm watching. The other thing I'm watching um, is it is it is an election year. Oh, Andy, in a, a general election year. Um, I'm curious to see, and, and it may not it may not impact anything at all, but I am curious to see how much that Im- influences, you know, what bills are filed, Um how the votes are taken, how much posturing there is, you know, do we see legislators that are in uh, competitive races? Do they try if they're, if they're Republicans, are they cozying up to the president? If they're Democrats, are they cozying up to the democratic nominee? You know, does this increase or decrease the number of nonsense bills that we see filed? Oh, a hundred percent more nonsense, you know? (laughs) Um, But then the last, uh, the last, but I'm, I, I'm curious and this could have, I mean, the ramifications that this could have are tough to, tough to foresee. 
what in God's name is Senator Anhoff going to do? Yeah. Right? So he, he has, he has not filed for reelection yet. Right. When's um, the deadline? I don't even know, but I, I'm as, I, as far as I'm aware, he hasn't done it yet. Um, he has, I have, some, he has said that he will continue to serve in office as long as he can fly his plane upside down. He's, I mean, if you um, read the FAA incident reports, he can't really fly it upside down now. So, well, and so I heard the other night that there's a, I guess, a report that you know he had flown upside down, like past the airport, like past the control tower in uh, Muskogee or McAllister or somewhere, and they were like, "Whoa, that's illegal." <laughs> but I mean, what are they going to do? Like, you know, they didn't want to didn't want to poke the bear. Well, um. I have some theories about why the senator hasn't declared or filed for re-election yet. Please share. Okay, and I want to be real. I want to be real clear. Before you do, can I just chime in? April tenth, okay, is the filing deadline for primary candidates. Okay, so, um, so he's got roughly three and a half months that before he has to declare. So, so here's my theory, and I want to be. I want to be crystal clear. This is a theory. I have no inside information. I don't know anybody. That's not true. I know one person who works for Inhoff, but I've not talked to him about this at all. Um, and so this is just this is coming out of my head. Let's say that you are a United States senator, and let's say that maybe you're done. You're you're through. You're going to retire. Your your service is up. But let's say that you know you're from a very like strong Republican state. And the minute you say that you're retiring, that is going to be a bloodbath in the primary to figure out who's going to replace you. And let's say you also know that you have a, uh, a protege, a, um, and a student, a, uh, and also tons of money in the bank. Yes. Um, and you have kind of a thought in your head of who you would like to see replace you. And you know that as long as that person gets the nomination, um, they'll win because of how strongly conservative the state is. Well, what you might do in that circumstance, what you could do is you could say, I'm going to keep serving the state of Oklahoma until I can fly my plane upside down and yada, yada, and be really coy and not actually say what you're going to do. And then at like one o'clock in the afternoon on filing deadline, which is April, what'd we say? 10th? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. On the filing deadline in April, you know, about two hours before the office closes, you could say, I'm actually, uh, I am not going to file. I'm not running for reelection. And if you have in advance told your handpicked successor that that's what you're going to do, they can be ready to file their paperwork to Mm -hmm. run in the primary Mm -hmm. immediately and no one else will have a chance. Well, so we've already had a couple of of Democratic challengers, right? Most notably, Abby Broyles, who's the former journalist, then went to law school. Um, she has announced and has been running her campaign for several weeks or months now. Right. Um, and I, so she's but running. But I'd be clear, I'm only talking about the Republicans. Right, right. right? Like I am saying that I think at least possibly the reason that Senator Inhofe has not said whether he's running for election or not is because he knows that he's not going to. He has someone that he wants to see take his place. He feels confident that they'll win the general election as long as they get out of the primary. And he is going to delay his announcement as long as possible so that that person will be the only person in the primary or like mm-hmm. maybe one or two, cause no one is going to challenge Jim Inhofe for the nomination. Right. It, so who do you, can we talk about who you think it might be? I have theories, but they make me upset. <laughs> I mean, so it's a Republican. Do you think, who do, who do I, who do I think it might be? Who do, who do I think oh. it could be? Scott Pruitt. 
Pruitt watch. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? We'd get to use this music all the time. I I mean I again. How exciting would that be? So so I have no inside information. So but Pruitt's one. Uh, what about Greg Treat from the state senate? Absolutely a possibility. What about one of Oklahoma's congressmen, like uh, Frank Lucas or uh, Tom Cole? Do you think they would try to go up, or is their position in the House high enough that they would not try to? Go yeah, to the senate? Uh, for for Representative Lucas, Congressman Lucas, maybe. Uh, for Congressman Cole, I don't think so. Congressman Cole is, I want to say, the third or fourth ranking member of the whole GOP conference yeah. in the House. I mean, he's been there for a long time. He has a ton of seniority. I don't know that you give that up to go be the junior senator from Oklahoma. So what about someone lower in the in the rank and file? What about like Mark Wayne Mullen? You know, he's an interesting I mean I mean maybe. Hey, I will just say on a note to to kind of bleed over it back into uh anti gerrymandering and redistricting back in uh Early January or late December, Marquin Mullen had a town hall meeting in Oklahoma where he said that the most secure job in America is a congressman uh, or congressperson who has a gerrymandered district and that that is not okay. Like, I don't remember the exact quote, but I was like, oh my gosh, he's with us. You I should mean, you should put that on your, uh, put he, that on your ads. He didn't, well, and I mean, beyond him, like, I was thinking President Ronald Reagan Bob Dole, John McCain, John Kasich, Governor Frank Keating. There's a there's a, a long list of Republicans who are vehemently opposed or were when, during their lifetime to gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, and urged the Supreme Court to end it. Um, many of them, sadly, you know, have passed away before they get to see it happen. But we're gonna make it happen. All the, all that to say, I mean, I again, it could I could be totally wrong. Is Senator Inhofe gonna file for re-election next week? And if he does, then you know that's fine. But at most, um, he's got one term left, right? I mean, that's I'm, six years. I mean, how, he's he's is he what eighty six, eighty four? I'm I'm googling. Um, but he's he's one of the senior members of the Senate. Um, in both, both. Uh, stature and uh, years, <laughs> age eighty five. So he's eighty five. I was close. Um, so yeah, I would think probably one term. Um, although I didn't, I want to say Strom Thurmond served until like ninety one. Ooh, that dude was he was up there. He was um, like an episode of the Mummy. Yes. Um, he had he was a Dixiecrat. He was a Dixiecrat. <laughs> he was he's uh, so one. I th- I think he conducted one of the longest filibusters in Senate history against the Civil Rights Act. Yes. But um, um, but that's, <laughs> I, that's another that's to another, repeat against the Civil Rights uh, Act. Yeah, it's another it's ah, another it's ah. another another conversation that ah, hurts a little bit. I see what you did there. Um, but the reason that I say that this is something I'm watching is because if this is what happens, if this is if this is kind of the game that the senator is playing in terms of his reelection, that would I think cause. I mean, I don't know. I'm not involved in the the inner machinations of GOP politics in uh, GOP politics in Oklahoma. I can tell you that this happened recently, and I think it was either North Carolina or South Carolina. There was a GOP representative who uh, resigned or declined to file for reelection until the very last minute, mm-hmm. um, and lo. Lo and behold, shockingly, like the minute that he said he wasn't going to run for re-election, his chief of staff filed to run in his place. Surprise! And it was like there was no coordination here. We didn't. Shazam, we, we, shazam, shazam. We, we never talked about this. And the party was pissed because it's like, you don't get to pick who your successor is. Like, we get to vote on who we want to take your place. This is a safe seat. So the party should get to decide. You shouldn't get to decide. I think this is no disrespect to Abby Broyles. I think she's running a great campaign. And, you know, I fight the, fight the good fight. But I think it's reasonable to think that the Senator Inhofe's seat is is pretty solidly yeah. in the, in the uh, Republican column. And so 
if if this is a if this is uh, if, he, if he's being coy to try and make sure that he has outsized influence in terms of who his successor is, particularly for a variety of reasons, if your state question about gerrymandering is successful and outlawing partisan gerrymandering in, in Oklahoma, that's going to piss a lot of people off. Well, sure. Oh, a, a lot of people of one party off, right? Um, well, and I mean, I guess arguably a lot of politicians, and that's okay. But senators aren't, they're not subject to gerrymandering. Like, they represent the whole state. Yes, but I'm thinking of a couple of folks in particular uh-huh. who uh, maybe want to run for heavily gerrymandered districts, who have aspirations, who, higher office, who wouldn't be able to and right. would see a Senate seat as their next best opportunity. Sure. Hey, I mean, who among us would not uh, accept a U.S. Senate seat if it was given to us by a sitting senator? I think being a U.S. senator sounds like one of the greatest jobs in the world. It's, uh, you got a lot of power, uh, you got a lot of pay, a lot of influence. Even if you're a junior senator from Oklahoma, you're doing all right because you would likely be in the majority, right? So, um, and, and arguably, I will just say, I mean, Oklahoma is a majority Republican state based on voter registration. So, um, speaking of which, let's talk about a few bills that are coming up. I'm going to play a sound effect because I feel like we need some kind of transition. All right. Bill update. So, an, you know, roughly 2,000 bills have been filed this session. And as Scott and I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to be sorting through those and developing, kind of building out our Predictorama slate um, for this year of issues and bills, but I want to highlight a couple of those that I think are particularly salient given our discussion today. Um, The first of which is House Joint Resolution 1027 by Representative Pfeiffer in the House. So a, a joint resolution is a bill, but it's a different sort of bill. It is a, it's not just a regular law, like a statute change. It would be a constitutional amendment But in order to do that, it has to pass both chambers, House and Senate, and then go to a vote of the people, right? Scott, can you think of an example of this from recent? Uh, Alcohol. Liquor laws, that's right. So so House Joint Resolution 1027 by Representative Pfeiffer would make a substantial change to the initiative petition process. Scott, what are some recent initiative petitions that have been notable. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we have a uh, medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an initiative petition. We have uh, uh, your redistricting. That's an initiative petition. Indeed. We've got uh, Medicaid expansion. That's Medicaid expansion. an initiative yes. petition. Yes. We have those are what else? What else we have? Criminal justice reform. Criminal justice. Seven eighty. Seven eighty one. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. These were all things that people asked the legislature to act on, and they declined. Yeah. For years and years and years. So I had a conversation last night with some folks that are in the know, and that was the deal: is that like, regardless of what the issue is, and however you want to assign partisanship to these issues. These have all been issues that have been discussed for at least 10 years by the legislature, right? So, like, healthcare is not new. Medicaid expansion is not new. Senator McCourtney and others held a working group about this two years ago. Like, this is a big deal that they have been talking about. However, because the legislature has failed to act on these issues for years and years and years and years, right, Um eventually the people in our state are like, listen, if you're not going to do this thing that we want and the polling all indicates that 
the people want this. In Oklahoma, we have the the option of doing you know what we call direct democracy or the initiative petition process and and taking it to the ballot ourselves. And so we've seen this time and time again, again, right from criminal justice reform, from Medicaid expansion, from medical marijuana, for a number of other issues. And every year, there's you know I don't know five to eight state questions that are examples of the people taking issues to the ballot because the legislature refuses to do the people's bidding. We do use the initiative petition process a lot. And for, for a couple of reasons, right? Like one is that this, the Oklahoma state constitution is very long and has tentacles and lots of issues. So you have to amend it in some cases, but we are, um, there are just a number of things that if the legislature won't act, then it's, then it's up to the people. So anyway, HJR 1027 by Representative Pfeiffer would make that infinitely more difficult. And Scott, you and I started talking about this before we started recording, and I told you I would not tell you about it until right now because I wanted your raw and unedited okay. response, right? I'm so listening. I see you texting over there. you got to listen to this part. The uh, <laughs> so um, Call me out. I'm, listeners know us, right? So the, the current system for... An initiative petition is that you have to collect the the number of signatures that, that is required to be collected depends if it's a a statute change like just a law change or a constitutional change right and so for a statute change it's you have to collect eight percent of the previous turnout for the last gubernatorial election right and for a constitutional change it's fifteen percent of that of turnout the previous gubernatorial election. So for constitutional changes, how much? 15. And for eight. Okay. So it's it's 8% for just a law change and then twice that for a constitutional change. This is signatures. Yes. The yeah. number of signatures, right? So for example, for right now, based on the 2018 gubernatorial turnout for a constitutional change, it requires 178,000 signatures. Okay. In 90 days. Okay. So under HJR 1027 proposed here, it would it would change not from the not the percentage of the the turnout, but the percentage of actual registered voters, which is a lot higher. Scott is peering at me across the that is here. that is nonsense. And so instead of 178,000 signatures, we would be required to get 314,000 signatures. Oh, that's some horseshit. <laughs> That is just pure. <laughs> who, who's who's running this? Representative Pfeiffer. Where's Pfeiffer from? I don't know. Um, where's where's he from? I want to know if he knows what horseshit smells like. Well, I'm sure he does. He's from Oklahoma. So um, because that's that's that is what this is. So that would that would dramatic. It would arguably just kill the initiative petition process, right? So even for a a constitution or a uh, excuse me a statute change it would it would bump the number up substantially right um and so that would be part of it but there's two parts so that would be part of it the other part is is honestly like more acceptable i guess it would change um not ideal but i'll say permissible um it would require it that same percentage eight percent fifteen percent whatever to be not just from the state as a whole, but from each congressional district. So you'd have to get like 15% from CD1, CD2, CD3, CD4, CD5. Um, and that, that way you get like a representative 
sample from across the state. Does he think this is Iowa and we have caucuses? No, but I mean that's. Does he think this is the UK and that's that we need? We're a parliamentary system. <laughs> if only. This uh, what I mean. So when's when is Representative Pfeiffer going to come on the show and talk about this with us? Well, I haven't asked him, but that would be. Um, um, that's certainly a, an option. We can reach out. And, yeah, where, where, what district? What districts is is uh, Pfeiffer? Um, he is from District Thirty Eight: Garfield, Grant, K, Logan, and Noble. So all like uh, um, up north, it goes basically from the Kansas border all the way down to Guthrie. Pfeiffer. So he should know what horseshit smells like. Yeah, I mean, and I and I want to be clear. I'm I'm saying that because that is this is some rural parts of Oklahoma where there's lots of horses and cattle and whatnot. Yeah, we can. Uh, we can certainly reach out to him and, and see if he'd come on the show to talk about it. I think that'd be absolutely fascinating. Um, but yeah, so this is, in in my opinion, and probably the opinion of, of many others, this is a direct attack on direct democracy, right? So this is trying to limit the voice of the people and put put undue burden on folks who are trying to get some on the ballot. Um, it, it's not... You know, so while the population of each con- congressional district is supposed to be equal, they are vastly different in how they're spread out, right? So, like, if you are collecting signatures in Oklahoma City or Tulsa, that's one thing. It's pretty densely populated. But if you've got to travel around, like, the western, you know, two-fifths of the state to try to get signatures, it's not insurmountable, but it's difficult. But the one thing, the changing it from, like, the percentage of turnout the percentage of registered voters is a little absurd right because turnout anywhere is not not remotely close to what actual like registrations are even i mean even requiring even requiring that you meet that threshold in every jurisdiction though is also ridiculous because you have some of these things right there i mean i mean that's an urban rural thing Right. And that's just, that's, I, I mean, now on the one hand, like to play devil's advocate. Okay. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a, right. We live, we live in a Republic, right? right? We do not, you know, if you're getting, if you're getting right down to the nitty gritty of it, we don't elect our representatives to do what we want them to do. We elect them to do what they think is best, right? Like, and there is a difference. We like that's the difference between a republic and a democracy is that we we elect leaders to make decisions for us. We don't elect leaders to carry out what our decisions are, mm-hmm. right? So you can make an argument that he is thinking that the initiative position, the initiative petition process, is being abused and trying to. Uh, usurp power from the legislature Mm -hmm. i would say two things to that Mm -hmm. one the legislature has power only because it's given to them by the people so it's ultimately our power to begin with not theirs and Mm -hmm. we can revoke it whenever the f we want to Mm -hmm. and two they're not doing it (laughs) right like every single one of these issues is an issues on which is an issue on which they have failed Right, right, because they right. refuse to act. Right, this yeah. is not a deal where the letters like it, it's not even that they haven't like that they've debated things and then the bills don't pass. Right, it's that they don't even do it. It's that they're too, um, dare I say, someone's going to play this back to me one day. They're too cowardly to take the vote. Oh, 
right? Ooh, right. I mean, like seriously, well, right? Like I mean, that's like that's the they like that's vote, the deal. They just vote against it. There's a, but sometimes but sometimes they don't, they don't even do that though, right? Mm-hmm. Like a great example of this, a great example of this from uh, from national politics is when you talk about uh, authorization for use of military force, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, Democrats are rightly coming after President Trump, in my view, rightly saying that he didn't have an authorization for use of military force to conduct a strike in Iraq to uh, take out, assassinate, whatever term you want to use, mm-hmm. um, uh, Qasem Soleimani, mm-hmm. uh, who was an Iranian general, right? Mm-hmm. Now, whatever you think about whether or not Soleimani should have been taken out or not, the argument for the Dems is that that requires an authorization from Congress because it's an act of war, right? Right. Very similar arguments were made against President Obama by and, the Republicans. And Bush and Clinton and everyone else previously, right? Right. Since Vietnam. Right. Like Korea, maybe. But the the point that I'm going to make, though, is that President Obama was chastised by Congress for not seeking an authorization to use military force when we uh, conducted airstrikes in Libya, right? Mm-hmm. So then when it came time to make a decision about whether or not to intervene militarily in Syria... President Obama asked Congress if they would take a vote on whether or not to, quote, give him the authority to conduct military operations in Syria. And it's not that they didn't give him the authority. They wouldn't take the vote. Mm, right, right. They don't want to be on the record. They're right. perfectly happy to, like, and this is what, like, this is what happens. I mean, and it's not unique to Congress. It happens in Oklahoma. It happens in states all over the country, Right. They never voted on medical marijuana in the legislature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not that they voted and they couldn't get it passed and so it went to initiative petition. They wouldn't vote it because they didn't want to. Right. That's a whole different ballgame. Right. And like that's my issue and that's what I would say to Senator Pfeiffer if he was here or Representative Pfeiffer if he was here is that like if if you want like if you want this power to be vested solely with the legislature, that's fine, but you have to wield it. Right. Right. Take the vote or don't take the vote. Right. So, but just uh, not don't the inaction is unacceptable. But anyway, I right. could do a whole anyway. Um, I did want to bring up one bill that I think yeah, is really yeah. interesting that I don't know if it'll get traction. I definitely hope it gets traction. This is House Bill 2876 by Representative Dunnington, House District 88. Uh, this would eliminate the death penalty in Oklahoma. Um, I have, when was the last time that we executed somebody? It's been a while, right? um, a couple of years because we had those uh. A number of botched etched, uh, uh, executions, which is not ideal. Yeah, it's not great. Um, so this would get rid of the death penalty. Um, you know, there are obviously moral reasons that we can talk about getting rid of the death penalty, but um, Representative Dunnington's position that he's, I think, kind of articulating in favor of the bill, morality aside, um, it costs money. It costs more money than lifetime incarceration, and there's no, eff- there is no. Um, effectiveness like there's no evidence that it effectively deters crime right like right but it feels good to, it's, to a lot of people right like, it's crazy expensive and doesn't appear to work so why do we keep because doing I, it's, it because this is a thing that doesn't like um much like weddings and babies this transcends common sense and it extends to a situation where emotionality gets the lead so i would actually disagree with you there what? Yeah. I'll fight you. It doesn't transcend common sense. Common sense tells you that threatening someone with death should be the ultimate deterrent. Right? Well, common, uh, common sense says the reason that people are so opposed 
to re- getting rid of the death penalty mm-hmm. is because common sense says that it should be super effective as a method of punishment. Oh, but the, it's not. Because we all think we're going to live forever. Right. The data says that it's not. Right. Right. right? No, I'm with so you. So it's not that this is not. So I would say that, yes, there's emotion involved, but there are also people who would say, oh, no. We need the death penalty because how else are you going to deter people from committing well, heinous crimes? No, so this is common, the, common sense says that it works, yes. but the data says that it doesn't. That's what I'm saying is that the data doesn't effing matter. You can unplug that over there. The 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 common sense is that yes, it doesn't it doesn't work. You and I know that. However, most people don't, and they just this is like that thing that like if you murder my sister, and then I think well you should die because you killed her. It's still not equal, right? Like. Maybe she didn't do anything, but you did something. And so it's even in, in a life for a life, this is like Hammurabi's code, right? Like from, oh, that's a, that's, that's a deep cut. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, but it's, it's not, it's not uh, equitable, right? Because she did nothing. You did something. So even if you die, it's not the same. An eye for an eye doesn't work in society. It didn't work in Egypt. It doesn't work now. Um, anyway. To share your uh, your interest, I'm curious to see what happens in Oklahoma. Um, you know, similar to Texas, right? Where Texas like put it in like an express lane that if if three or more people saw you commit the crime, that you've heard the Ron White comedy, right? Yes, yes. I was yeah, saying, yeah. I was like, some states are eliminating the death penalty. <laughs> My state's putting in an express lane. Yeah. As I, a, I do love as a, a Texan myself. I mean, that's. That's what they did, um, but it doesn't make it the best decision, and it it's hard to separate emotionality from fiscal responsibility, right? And often, I think for a lot of folks, this is where it, it bumps up against one another. Like, well, it's it's better for our state budget if we don't kill people, but we don't like that they committed these heinous crimes. And so, but honestly, like, listen, prison is uh, is no fun. So lock them up for life and like let them suffer unpopular opinion prison also super ineffective as a deterrent to crime yeah but that's another discussion i mean i don't know like this is going to get off into a weird direction so we should probably just wrap up our episode because we're already at an hour or hour plus of this episode dude it's uh this has been great hey welcome back man i uh i have missed this we i have to scott i mean we i mean you know listeners are gonna be like what do you mean you've missed it don't you guys talk like we we Talk we text every day, every but, day but, but sitting down and getting to hash it out has been yeah we've missed minute. that yeah so uh that does officially bring us to the end of this episode thank you listeners for hanging with us thanks for being here for another year um for another 100 episodes welcome to 2020 we're gonna be back with the weekly episodes plus some extra ones for uh healthcare and some other issues um, don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcast and Spotify and wherever else you listen. Um, we've got some new things. We've got a new website coming out soon. Just a quick uh, under the undercover uh, nod there. So You heard it here first. That, indeed you did. I haven't told the board yet. That's on Sunday. Um, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Let's Fix This OK. You can follow Scott at SC Melson. I, Andy, am at Andy OKC. You can also like uh, our Facebook page um, and whatever other social media you have. Our website is at, uh, excuse me, letsfixthisok.org. Sign up for our uh, updates, for our newsletter, read our blog, donate, help support this. Um, This would be uh, tremendous. We've got really big dreams, um, and we, both for Oklahoma and for the rest of the country, and your generous support helps us make those dreams a reality. 
Uh, our new theme music is called uh, Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Um, check them out on uh, Spotify and everywhere else. And uh, give us a shout out on social media. Let us know what do you what do you think of the new theme music? Is it a I'm super excited about it, but let us know if you're not into it. <laughs> that's that's true. Wait, this is uh, Scott. I've been listening to it for a while, and we really weighed their weighed our options, and we like it. But if you hate it, let us know, and we'll we'll switch back to uh, Sugar Free All Stars. That's definitely cool. Um, as a reminder, let's fix this is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization. Uh, we're 501c3, and we strive to educate and equip all Oklahomans so they can engage, so you can engage with your government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. Remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.